0: Okay, so Exodus chapter 8, Exodus chapter 8, we're going to uh, continue our examination of the 10 plagues. We are on plague number 3, the third plague, which is the plague of lice. So we're going to read uh, Exodus chapter 8, verse 16 to 19, and like I said, we might combine a couple of plagues here and there, but uh, many of them, there's enough to, to talk about that you know they deserve their own treatment. And so um, we're, we'll do that here this evening for the third plague. But if you got your Bible, let's begin by reading Exodus chapter eight, verse sixteen to nineteen. The text says this: "And the Lord said unto Moses, Send Aaron, stretch out your rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice." Uh, in man and in beast and all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt and the magicians did so with their enchantments uh, to bring forth lice but they could not so there were lice upon man and upon beast when the when the magicians said unto pharaoh then the magician said unto pharaoh this is the finger of god and pharaoh's heart was hardened and he hearkened not unto them as the lord had said pause there now Again, uh, simple thought flow as we work our way through many of the plagues, we're going to look at uh, kind of just a quick examination of the scene, what, what's going on, you know, what are the, what's what's the, uh, what's transpiring in the narrative, if you will, and then we'll also kind of at the end, we'll, we'll come back and consider the significance of it from a, a couple of different angles. Every Plague is, of course, unique in that it's a different plague and there's often a special emphasis that is given to it, which we'll, is what we'll look at, particularly in the significance section. But there's obviously a lot of re- repetition. We, we already built the case for that. We'll see that as we work our way through because the, o- the whole idea of the repetition is the cumulative effect, right? Uh, that it's going to grow in intensity and there's going to be more and more devastation le- leveled upon the land of Egypt because of the hard heart of Pharaoh. But nonetheless, there are various things uh, about each plague that make it stand out as unique from, from the others. So first of all, as we just set the scene, try to understand this plague, when does it occur? Well, again, note, and we've, we've foreshadowed this, that it would be the case, but let me point it out again, that the third plague arrives without warning to the Egyptians. There is no audience before Pharaoh, and there, as there was for previa, the previous two plagues. We're going to see that. Uh, it, recall the, the three triplets, right? The, we see the, the first three plagues, are then, there's there's a, that pattern's repeated in the next three, pattern's repeated in the next three, and then the 10th plague is kind of that final climactic plague. There's a very intentional structure you know, built into the plagues. Well, this is the first of the plagues that arrives without warning to the Egyptians, which is why it's a shorter plague. Uh, right, it's only given a few verses of shorter in the sense of the record that is recorded, right, it may well have lasted of equivalent length of that week to eight days-ish that all the plagues probably lasted, roughly, that timetable, but I meant shorter in the sense that there's fewer verses given to it, and largely it's because it does not have the prelude, it doesn't have that warning that is common to all the other, or most of the other plagues. But the whole point of this plague, and we'll see, again, this is repeated uh, two more times in, in, the, in the, uh, the triads, but th- this plague that comes without warning is appropriate in that the Egyptian king is deserving of the disaster because he just lied and hardened his heart, right? In other words, he's already had multiple opportunities uh, to respond appropriately, which he has not. So God levels uh, this third plague without warning. Now, there is some, and some of your English translations will debate about this, there's some uh, debate as to what is the third plague. In other words, your King James will have the word lice. Uh, Some of your translations will have the word gnats. This Hebrew word, kinim, occurs five times in this passage and nowhere else in the scriptures except the parallel passage in Psalm 105, verse 31, which is also describing this plague. And so the reality is, there, there is a little bit of debate as to what this is. Um, your kind of traditional uh, King James translation is lice. And that is supported by, if, again, if you get kind of lost in the, because uh, anytime you're, you're trying to understand a word, like whether, whether it's, uh, like this is not a Hapax Legomena, right? Because it's used six times in the scripture. But it's all used in the same context, referring to the same event. So it can it, we don't have differing contexts that help us discern what that word means. So you often then, when, when you have a word that's difficult like that, you start going into different sources. For instance, Josephus, the Peshitta, uh, the Targum uh, of Ankelos. All of these ancient sources support the Lice reading, which is, well, again, kind of your classic reading. Uh, but then your other option... Oh, Catherine. Lice are way worse. Lice are worse. Okay, so let's just take it from the vet, okay? <laughs> lice are way worse. So I got to say, like, Mike, because I, I mean, I grew up as, uh, you know, at Camp Utibica. I, was, I became the camp director at Utibica uh, for many years. Uh, so, but there was one year, and, and after that, we, we standardized the lice check, Because there was one year some camper came and like, and we didn't, we didn't know. They had lice and lice just took over the camp And, and there was like, it was nasty. And we had to do the lice bombs, right? Where we were just, it was pretty gross. So after that, from every registration check, right? I mean, kids would come in, they would get registered and they would all sit down for a lice check. And we did it to every kid every year since then. <laughs> Trying to avoid this issue. And man, they are pesky buggers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they still do it in school here. Do they do the life check? Now, how often do they do it? Just the beginning uh, of the, beginning year? Of the school year? Just the beginning?
1: And then if, anytime somebody comes to school that came from a different
0: country like Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Especially you're out of you know, out of country kind of people, you're foreign exchange students or whatever. Yeah. I'm telling you, they are they are nasty. Yeah, they're they're nasty, and and again, I mean, I, I, and you make a fair point, right? They're actually blood sucking, right? I mean, let's we'll say it again. Okay, they're the they're the worst, the worst of the two. Oh man, that's a isn't this a pleasant thought? I think I think everybody just scratched their head at some point. <laughs> I just want to point that out, right? Yeah, right. I'm pretty sure everyone just kind of scratched a little bit. Whew, can you imagine? All right. So that is the traditional reading is that it's lice. It's, uh, and that it has, honestly, uh, more support from antiquity. Like if you actually look at the Peshitta, Josephus, the Targum, there's pretty strong support for that. Uh, some of your translations will use the term gnat or Mosquito. The reason for that is because it's favored uh, by most modern interpreters, and the reason for that is because it is uh, what the LXX, the Septuagint, uses a particular Greek word that is more, you know, specific than the Hebrew word, and so... And then it's, it's just assumed that those people, right, they're Jews that are translating Hebrew into Greek, and they had firsthand acquaintance with Egypt. They were living in Egypt. Uh, and, and so it's assumed that that would be more authoritative. That's why most of your modern translations will use the term gnat or mosquito. Uh, and that's also supported by Philo, Origin, Gesenius. Keel is one of the uh, classic commentators. And others, so that's kind of the more common one. But your classic view, or in modernity, but your classic view is that we have lice going on here. All right, now there, though there's obviously some debate as to what is the third plague. What actual you know insect are we talking about? One of the things that makes the plague unique, this this third plague, and we'll see again. Like I said, every plague is going to have something in it that makes it unique. It stands out from the record of all the other plagues. Well, one of the things about the third plague is that it occurs against the dust of the land. Now, again, this aspect is not only what makes this third plague stand out, but what's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of it? Um, well, you tell me. What What's the significance of this being? There's at least a couple observations I want to pull out, but what are you seeing? What's the significance that it says there to perform this against the dust that land and then all the dust becomes lice do you see any significance in that what what would be an observation that comes to your mind Gordy? well
1: if if you did subscribe to the mosquito thing if the dust was smoked with water and made puddles mosquitoes would breathe
0: yeah okay there you go yeah just make it worse (laughs) okay all right any other thoughts on that What's that? Dead people, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I missed that. The
1: Israelites,
0: the dead people. Okay. Okay. Oh, there you go. All right, the dead Israelites going to dust. Ah, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But that's kind of like a almost like what we were talking about. Uh, Was it? no, well, most of the time, right? But a couple ago, the Nile an and blood, right? That kind of poetic justice sort of thing is that. Hey, you, you killed the. Uh, the children, the blood, innocent blood that was shed, right? So that poetic justice, that's an interesting thought, right? The the dead Israelites whose bodies have gone to dust, if you will. That's an interesting thought. Good. Any, any other thoughts on that? Because I, I think, yeah.
1: Was there a God of the land?
0: There was. Yes, definitely. I'll come back to that. <clears throat> definitely a God of the land that's being... Most likely target again, that's probably one of the common denominators of all the plagues, right? There's a unique God that's being targeted, so yes, we'll come back to that. You got a thought, Bob? Yeah,
1: I was just kind of thinking, you know, um, he just showed how easily God can just take something so you know, like dust, it's so easy for him to have such a dramatic effect, and then we just weirdly really
0: uses dust, sure, yeah, almost the creative aspect of God, right? When you think about, right, I mean, made. I mean, we as humans, right, we're made out of the dust of the earth, right? So, almost the creative genius of God. Yeah. All right. And he's that's good. Yeah, Joe.
1: Well, dust is prevalent. Like when it blows dust storm, it's like everywhere.
0: Yeah. It's it you know, good. The dust
1: to the bugs, pretty
0: much go. Okay, that's good. I think, yeah, and that's one of the observations I want to highlight is that, well, <clears throat> exactly what Joe said you know, one of the big things is that, you know, this observation is significant in at least two ways. First, it highlights the intensity of the plague, and then the significance of the plague, all right? So the intensity in that, the phrase dust of the earth, is a very common biblical idiom, right? It shows up all over the place, reflecting something that is enormous, right? And and one, the place that we see this, perhaps at least in our minds, that comes most you know, quickly to our minds, is the idea of Abraham's descendants will be like the dust of the earth, right? The sand of the seashore. There's various phrases that are roughly the equivalent idea, of, right? The stars of the sky. And the concept is it's innumerable. And so when you think about, and again, when you think about Egypt, right? Have you ever seen pictures of Egypt? <laughs> there is sand everywhere, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just everywhere. So the prevalence is just, all right, so the whole concept is that these bugs. Are going to be innumerable. These bugs that descend, whether it's you know gnats or mosquitoes or lice, you know they are going to be everywhere. And so that's again one of the key points that's being highlighted. But coming back to Simone's point, is the significance of the plague is also seen in this idea, this idea of the uh, the, the dust of the earth being transformed into lice. And at least one, and again we can see uh, other. Ideas perhaps come out of this, but the big concept or significance that we see behind it is again probably targeted at the Egyptian pantheon. Egypt has some of the most fertile soil in the world uh, it all it grew all sorts of nourishing vegetables, plants, fruit, grain, and this was the pride of Egypt. In fact, I put in your notes there numbers, chapter eleven verse five. recall when israel was was wandering in the wilderness, they were actually reminiscing back. Uh, uh, concerning all the things that they used to have in Egypt, right—the leeks and the onions and the melons—and right, they were going on and on about all the the good stuff that Egypt was able to grow, and and that's just—we have other extra biblical evidence that says the same thing. Uh, but the whole point is very fertile soil. There was a, an Egyptian god uh, Geb, G E B, who is in charge of protecting the land and keeping it fruitful. Again, similarly to Heket, which we talked about last time, the frog goddess, we talked about her last time, but similarly to Heket uh, and the frogs, Geb would protect various insects that were considered crucial for the fertility of the land, right? So in other words, Geb was associated with a land, but also associated with various strands of insects that were, you know, considered important for the, the fertility of that land. But again, the point is obvious. Now, as part of God's judgment on the land. This fruitful pride of Egypt began to produce lice or gnats in great abundance. And once again, because these insects were associated with the gods, they could not be killed, only endured. And so again, the, the, the nuisance is is unbearable, right? My, my scalp is itching just thinking about it once again. But nonetheless, the whole point is once again, Yahweh is demonstrating His, super, his supremacy, His superiority over the gods of Egypt. But this time, he's making sure that the Egyptians themselves know it, that he is supreme. In that, it highlights which is, what is probably the, the primary significance of this plague is what is highlighted in verses 18 and 19, namely that the Egyptian magicians were not able to reproduce this plague. They, had, they thus had to admit that this is the finger of God. Now, we already highlighted this a little bit in the past. I want to camp on a little bit more tonight. But recall that we have, uh, again, we typically say you know, there's, there's the first two plagues, but even the serpent encounter. So there were three events or feats, if you want to put it that way, that the Egyptian magicians were able to reproduce. But now that we get to the third plague, they're incapable of this. And they're, they're not only incapable, but they come to the place where they admit that what they are witnessing is indeed the finger of God. Now, yeah, Kevin. <clears throat> The irony. No, it's good. <clears throat> That's good. That's an interesting parallel. I like that. So the hard heart of Pharaoh, paralleled by the hard hearts of the Egyptians who, you know, they want to sh- prove that they can do it, but they're only making the plague worse. They're incapable of reversing it. Even when they can accomplish the feat, they can't reverse it, right? They're only adding to the agony. And so it's like they're adding adding to the the hardening, if you will, of the heart. That's good. Yeah? So
1: you back to the dust.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Steve made, maybe made allusion to that, the idea of the, the dead bodies return to dust. But then, um, well, who was it? that mentioned the idea of creation as the act of God. It was you, <laughs> right? The idea of this insignificant, seemingly insignificant thing that God can take and the creative power of God. Absolutely. Is, I, I think there's, because there is a, so I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because I want to contemplate on that phrase, the finger of God, but one of the things that I think is, is evident here is we're seeing a clear distinction in the power that the magicians are wielding and the power that God has. And the thing that, that many theologians will say, okay, I mean, does Satan have power? Yeah. Does the demonic world have power? Yeah. But what is different about divine versus demonic power? What is it that makes divine power distinctly you know different or more powerful it's okay yeah that's good it's original it's eternal it's it has creative capabilities right most scholars i mean again i mean let me know if you can find one but i, I can't find an exception to this most scholars will point this out that satan is not the originator of anything right he's like a cheap knockoff he exactly satan cannot create Is is that's really the fundamental idea. Recall this. In other words, let me just elaborate on this for just a second and then uh, give me some feedback. In the Genesis narrative, and I should have included this in your notes, I didn't. But in the Genesis narrative, there are three primary verbs that are used. You remember this? You have barah, which is the the big one, right? That's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word is barah in Hebrew. And it, that's the big one, um, which, you know, we'll come back to that. But that's the one that means to make something out of nothing. So that's, you know, creation ex nihilo. Is, is that how you say it? That's my Latin. My Latin's a little rusty. But ex nihilo means out of nothing, right? To make something out of nothing. Um, that's the big one. But then you have the word asha, and it means to form or fashion, to add complexity. It's the word that's used... Um, to to for like the building of the tabernacle, you take elements that already exist, but then you 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 know you you manufacture you, you know, like an architect or a, uh, an engineer you know thinks of how to arrange those materials and puts them together. Well, that's the idea of asha, and then your your last one is is yatsar, which is the Hebrew word that it really is sometimes translated like finger work, and it's the word that's used of a potter. And that's the word that is used uh, when it says that God formed man out of the dust of the ground, right? And breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. Those are your three big ones. You actually do have a fourth one. Um, it's only used once, I think, in the Genesis narrative. And it's bana. It's actually, remember this? This is the one, uh, it's kind of like Asha on steroids. It's like, it, it's it's a masterpiece with incredible complexity is the idea. And it's actually the one when it says that God took from Adam a rib, and then with it, he made woman, or he built woman. And it's a unique word uh, that's used only that one time in the creation narrative. But the point is, you have all of these various verbs of what God does in the creative process, but you think about what Satan can reduplicate, you know, and arguably, he can do, you know, three out of the four, right? He can manipulate matter, he can add complexity he can, you know, beautify in the, in those various ways but he can't barah. he can't create something out of nothing that did not before exist Bob, and I'll come up to Lisa I was just kind of thinking of that
1: example you know, we talked the other day come back to the burning bush where um you know, where God has fire in a bush like carbon-based material that doesn't consume the bush, it preserves the
0: light And yeah, that's good The distinct fire of God, right? Not consuming, but... That's right. So it's creative. It's like it's keeping... Not 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 destructive. No, No, it's interesting. That's good. That's good. That's a good correlation. Absolutely. No, that's good. Because it it's impressive. Yeah, it's impressive, but it wasn't original. Exactly. It's not original. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Because all they're doing is reduplicating the, the plague, and they can't reverse it. And it's not, exactly, it's not original. It's not creative in the sense of, you know, not creative in the sense of inventive, but creative in the sense of an original creation. Yeah. So it just strikes me <clears throat> that it's extremely limited, and it reaches, it reaches its limit very quickly. So three mm-hmm. plays in, they're done. Yeah, <laughs> got a lot more. I love that, right? They tap out, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, God's just warming up, right? I mean, <laughs> he's on plague three, right? Exactly. Amen. And I think that's, again, we mentioned it a moment ago, but the, uh, the cumulative effect of the plagues is it's an overwhelming, you know, kind of use the you know, shock and awe sort of approach that God's going to not just beat you, he's going to humiliate you. Right? I mean he's gonna vindicate himself in every way, shape, and form. That's good. So I have sure, one more question just kind of going back
1: to before I was just wondering? So with with the lice and the gnats or whatever bugs it, it was,
0: wouldn't this also limit their sacrificial system because they would be unclean? Right, yes. Yep, we're gonna make a bigger deal of that uh in a couple of plagues. It's the boils. Uh that's in chapter nine. But we'll 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 make a bigger deal of that because it actually uses a phrase where it says that the magicians could no longer stand before pharaoh now there's one of two ways that you can take that or maybe it's both but first you can take it physically literally in other words they were afflicted by the boils so intensely that they were not capable of you know standing upright and performing their duties Um, that's one possibility the other way to take that which is probably at least in my studies more favored by most commentators is the idea that they were ceremonially unclean And when we'll see this, that there's a number of the plagues that would have done this, but the Egyptians were meticulously clean. Yeah, and particularly the priests. You had to be in order to perform the rituals, exactly. And so there were a number of the plagues that afflicted them in such a way that they were now incapable of carrying out their job. Absolutely. Did you have a hand up earlier? No? Okay, all right. Just making sure I'm not missing anybody good stuff. Okay. <clears throat> so let, let's camp on this phrase for just a, a few minutes, all right? Because I, I am so fascinated by this. I, I don't want to be totally redundant, but uh, some things bear repeating. You tell me, let's camp on this phrase, finger of God for a minute. Um, and, and what, because that's the admission of the magicians. They say, verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, right? And, and with that, they're bowing out. Uh, or as, and I, I love the way Currid puts it. He says, "Because of their failure, the magicians are perplexed. Therefore, they admit to Pharaoh that there exists a power greater than their magic. Their powers have been exhausted, and they have been defeated." And again, as as you can, we already alluded to this because they will show up in chapter nine. So, although the, the magicians do appear again in the storyline, chapter nine, verse eleven, they never try to reproduce another plague. So even when they show up in chapter 9, it simply says they were no longer able to stand before Pharaoh. Um, but it doesn't describe them attempting to reduplicate any of the other plagues. So for all intents and purposes, they leave the scene of the battle, right? I mean, with this, they are defeated. And so this is hugely important. Um, but what significance do you see in the phrase, finger of God? Like, what do you think that's that's getting at? Yeah, Joe. Well, one of
1: your things with creation, you, Mm. What you have to have
0: for to yeah, sure that's everything. good. That's good. That's key is you have to produce life non-life. Oh, that's good. So so let me build on that. That's a great observation. I didn't mention that a second ago. But remember, the term bara shows up, uh, I think it's like five times in Genesis chapter 1, if I remember correctly. And it, and they're strategically placed in the narrative. So that's the first word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, bara, he created, you know, the heavens and the earth. So many, again, your creation scientists are fond of pointing out that that's space, time, and matter, right, that have their beginning. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space, and the earth, there's matter, okay? So heaven, (laughs) earth, matter, etc. Time, space, matter had its beginning, Genesis chapter 1. However, the next time the term bara is used, because think about it, the, once you have time, space, and matter, then the creative acts of acts of God from there forward, the, the next four days of creation, it's all the word asha that he's he's shaping, forming, fashioning. He's moving around. He's you know dividing the you know the the waters above and the waters below, et cetera, making dry land to appear, et cetera. But the word bara does not appear again until day five, which is when God creates life. Animal life in particular. Not plant life, but animal life. There's a whole new creative act required to go from matter to life. All right? Then the next time it's used, which is used three times in one verse, is the creation of mankind. That's day six. Right? Right? is there's something even more unique that takes a another creative act of God when he makes mankind, which is interesting that we are, again, we're the capstone of creation. We're we're distinct even from animal life, right? We're, we're, we're a step beyond, beyond and above, and we're made in the image of God, right? And that takes a whole new creative act. So that's an excellent point. Uh, Catherine, they'll come up. Good. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So one's at least possible significance that we can see from the finger is the idea that, you know, it's, it's not God's because contrast this with how many times you see in the scripture, God's arm, Mm -hmm. his mighty hand or something along those lines, but here it's a finger, right? Okay. That's an interesting thought, Uh, Rhonda. And then, yeah, we'll come over here.
1: That's right. He said, Let us go and make man in our image. Mm-hmm. And so he used what he would, had already had available
0: to him to mold and shape man man and woman. So maybe perhaps with the finger of God, these magicians were were saying to themselves, Okay, so we have our gods and goddesses, they can't do this. They're acknowledging the good there you go good and that's very true there is a debate on that and and i'd be curious what you think but uh you know the magicians are definitely acknowledging that there's a power beyond what they're capable of are they conv- converting in other words is this a conversion account or is it simply an acknowledgement that they're defeated right and and that's that's, I don't know. That's a good that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if we have a definitive answer on that, but I think exactly what Rhonda pointed out is absolutely true, is they're admitting this is a creative power beyond us. This is the finger of God, right? And which is powerful for them to admit because they are the priests of the pantheon of the most, you know, the most feared pantheon in the ancient world, Egypt. But they're saying, man, we got nothing that can hold a candle to this. You got a thought? I was thinking kind of like, Pointing uh, your finger in your chest, you're leveling the judgment on or something like that. I was thinking back when um, Moses first appeared, and the Pharaoh punished the Israelites by making them make the bricks with no straw, just the clay or the mm. sand there, mm-hmm. and that was their punishment. And now he's saying, "Look what I can do with the sand! I don't need any str- or anything else, you know." Ah, uh, good. He's pointing a, a judgment finger at him. Good. No, I like that. So, kind of back to the poetic justice thing—the use of the sand that they had to make in bricks, right? Now God's using the sand against the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Bob, did you have a hand up? And then yeah, Tim, did you? Have... I was just kind of like the did you have up? Okay. That's right. And then, like Jesus talks about casting with the figure of God. That's right. It's good. Sure. So, so so, notice we got a, a second idea, it's Catherine's idea of like finger of God being an allusion to that, you know, it's just like a a little finger, yeah. right? I mean, little effort, right? Um, the other way to take it, and again, it's not always an either or, sometimes it's a both and, but the idea of God's handiwork, right? So like Psalm 19, will describe God's creative power as his handiwork. In other words, this is a masterpiece. Look at what God is doing, Right? So in other words, they're in awe of they can't do this. This is the finger of God or the the work of God, the masterpiece of a power that is beyond us. Right? That's another way of saying it. All right. Tim, and I'll come back to Catherine. Yeah, I think they're the same guys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's where, so coming back to the confession idea, the debate, is this a conversion or is it merely a confession that it's a power beyond their their understanding? I, I would, again, it's debatable, um, but I, I think Tim's observation is kind of what seals the deal for me, is that you have the New Testament testimony that they resisted Moses steadfastly, right? And it actually names them Janus and Jambres. And those names are not given in the Old Testament, by the way. They do appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for what it's worth, but they uh, they weren't, you know, th- that was common knowledge by Paul's time, uh, or even supernaturally revealed, perhaps. But it does, they do appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But Janus and Jambres are, are two of the names given to the magicians that oppose Moses and Aaron, and it resisted them steadfastly. So, in other words, I think it's good evidence. And some will just to take it a step further: is they'll they say finger of God, and it's a generic Elohim. They're not submitting or confessing belief in Yahweh per se. They're just saying ah, it's some deity that's we're just not familiar with. That's maybe a little you know more powerful than we expected, right? But in other words, they're admitting defeat, but they're not exercising faith, if you will, and you know converting. But that's I mean, for what it's worth. Okay, so back to the finger of God thing. Right, so with the finger of God right, that writes on the wall. Okay, yes. So, what's that? that uh huh. Yeah. Yep, he was leveling judgment, giving him a warning. Mm-hmm. That's right. And think about the finger of God. How many other times it appears? Right. I think. Uh, I have this He's in your notes. Oh, that's right, the Sistine Chapel. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. But notice the, the finger of God will appear a couple of more times in the uh, the Exodus narrative. Uh, and then, oh, yes, I'll come back to you, Catherine. But Exodus 31 and Deuteronomy 9 both talk about, and they're both talking about the same thing. It's it's the Ten Commandments that were written with the finger of God. And the idea is that it's something that's supernatural, but it's something that's coming with God's power and God's authority. Mm-hmm. All right, so if that makes sense. They're admitting a power and an authority that is that is beyond their own. Catherine. Yeah, you mentioned that it may have been like a possible conversion, but um, also, you know, how many times do
1: we see the demonic spirits acknowledge Jesus?
0: Maybe yeah, excellent. Maybe they were, that's good. Maybe here they were Yeah, that's good. Right. No, that's a good parallel. Did everyone catch that? All right. But yeah, we have New Testament parallels to that, where a a demon will acknowledge the superior power of Christ. And, you know, it's not exercising faith. It's not a conversion, but it is a tipping of the hat or an acknowledgement. Okay, I'm out of my league. Right. And they acknowledge the superior power. Excellent, which I think is probably what's going on here. Simone, do you have a thought? Um, I was thinking that every time you see uh, power shown on like TV shows or cartoons or whatever, the power always comes out of the end of their finger. And and it just kind of reminds me of that's how how God is. His power comes out of his hand. He doesn't have to do anything comes out, and there it is, right. whatever he wants it to be. No, that's good. That's good. And, and again, I encourage you, look up all these idioms, because I think there's some significance, right? If you were in our Isaiah class, we've talked about it, but the idea of the arm, right? God's arm, his mighty hand has already been referenced in Exodus, and here the finger, right? But they're all describing, yeah, the, the limitless power of God that he unveils. Carl?
1: And also as far as, you know, coming to repentance or whatever, usually when you're in power, you don't accept God's power. I mean, the Pharisees, Mm -hmm. the Sadducees, Mm -hmm. I mean, how many of them converted to Christianity versus...
0: Yep. It's very few. They
1: saw, you know, the same thing, the finger of God, I mean...
0: No that's it's so true. So, <clears throat> so stew on that one just for a second cuz I mean I think so it's, it's a great good great a point. Did,
1: but maybe the vast majority probably
0: did not. Oh, I agree. I was I was going to I was going to agree with that as I think I I mean, help me out. I can think of maybe one possible exception. I'm trying to think of some more. But how many people high in power, like political power, military power, whatever, were actually, you know, humbled themselves and were truly converted. More often than not, right, what does Paul say in the New Testament? Not many mighty, not many noble are called, right? It's the strong things of the world that so many times resist God. Um, Again, the exception that comes to my mind is, because I I think he was probably genuinely converted, but Nebuchadnezzar. What's that? Yeah, I was going to say Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. All right. I think I think he was probably genuinely converted. I mean, that's my read. Uh, but I, I mean, he whew, he writes quite the chapter, you know, in praise of Yahweh as he acknowledges, you know, Yahweh is the, the supreme being. Yeah. So it makes me think of when Paul went to um, Greece and they had the tomb or the the altar to the unknown
1: god mm-hmm. to cover all the bases. It's almost like magicians also are trying to get out of trouble with this unknown god by admitting that he's there.
0: Ah, that's an interesting thought. Did, you, did everyone catch that? It's just kind of another way of maybe, you know, reading into the psyche of these magicians is they're not only admitting, hey, this is a power beyond us, but maybe like the Athenians in, you know, Acts chapter 17, where they, just to cover all the bases, just to make sure that, you know, they didn't miss somebody, they put up an altar to the unknown God. And so here they're like, well, you know, let's tip our hat because this God is, you know, let's get on his good side and admit that he's powerful. Exactly, a recognition. Of his of his superiority. That's good. That's an interesting thought. I mean, you guys are just loaded with cool insights. Was there another hand? I thought I don't let me miss somebody. Yeah. Or another way to look at it is they were trying to discredit God, but then they couldn't. So... so they admitted that he was stronger. Yeah. Yeah, and and I agree. I mean, I think you know, which is. When I mean, think about it from their perspective. Like I said before, the the, the Exodus narratives are so fun, but try and put yourself in the shoes of all the individual characters. Typically, right, we're reading it. We're going to put ourselves in the shoes of the primary protagonists, right? We're going to think of Moses or Aaron or maybe Pharaoh, right? But think of the magicians. Think of the peon, you know, normal Egyptians. Think of the Israelis. Try to, you know, put yourself in all the different perspectives and just try and let that play out in your head. But think about these magicians. They're feeling their oats, right? After being able to reduplicate three events, right? The throwing down the staff and then the first two plagues, they're like, you know, oh yeah, you know, we got this, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, but then to be so humiliated, you know, that they have to say, well, we, we can't do this. And then later, as it says, and you know, we'll see at chapter nine, that they can't stand before Pharaoh anymore. And what's interesting is Pharaoh's going to stop consulting them. You know, because it says he turned to his magicians. He turned to his magicians. He turns to his magicians. Well, now, from here forward, he doesn't turn to his magicians anymore, right? I mean, it's like he doesn't ask them anymore. Rather, it says he, when it says he entreats or he calls out, it's referring to Moses and Aaron. And then he says to Moses and Aaron, Would you entreat your God? Because we can't do this, right? I mean, it's a humiliating thing for Pharaoh, right? And th- those magicians. Yeah. Well, I'll
1: give you a Pharaoh you.
0: right? (laughs) That's right. They had to at least give it a, give it a go, right? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because these magicians, you know, and to answer your question, I think it was probably a a mixture depending on the time and place. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Daniel 2, Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar had those magicians under his thumb, right? I mean, he's calling them to do something that genuinely authenticates them. He says, if you can't prove to me you're legit, I'm going to kill all of you, right? And it's like, whoa. I mean, that, but that was a really rare move in antiquity because most of, you know, kings in antiquity, they were pretty superstitious. And there was a, there was an aura around magicians that, you know, they, they weren't royalty, but they were feared even by royalty. Yeah, exactly. And because they're like, whoa, you know, these guys can make your life miserable, but then at some point like i think that's the whole point is that god is is stealing that aura away from these guys that these professional you know spiritual gurus are going to have nothing left they're going to be bankrupt and yahweh is going to be you know shown as supreme and he did it with dust in his finger right <laughs> uh, excellent all right so i got i got like 3 minutes but let me and i think uh uh, somebody, maybe Bob made this uh, connection, and I've alluded to this before, but I can't you know, end tonight without talking about it or at least pointing it out, is the, the New Testament connection that we see. Uh, and, and I have already mentioned this, but don't forget it. It's always worth repeating. In Luke chapter 11, go ahead and pop over there. I, I don't have a lot of time, but let's go ahead and read it, put eyes on it real fast. Luke chapter 11 is parallel to Matthew 12. And it's the whole Beelzebub scene, really important scene in the life of Christ. But Luke 11 is where it records the the phrase, finger of God. And and I think Jesus is making a very clear parallel back to our text in in Exodus chapter 8. So if you remember the scene, verse 14, it says he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb, and it came to pass, and the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some uh, of them said he cast out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils, and others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto him, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also be divided against himself, how how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub, and if I, by, be- by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. And if I, or but if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man, armed, keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he takes from him all his armor, wherein he trusted, and divides his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. Now, we could get lost in this. It's one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. But <clears throat> this scene is really important for a number of reasons. You're familiar with it. Um, but this this confrontation with Jesus, between Jesus and the religious leaders comes at the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Matthew's account purposefully quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, to describe that the powers that Jesus is displaying in his miracle working power is meant to be a fulfillment of the messianic passages of Isaiah chapter 42 in particular, but um, all the servant songs of Isaiah. And Jesus then performs a specifically messianic sign. Do you recall this? I've mentioned it before, but the idea, we could get lost in this, but the idea of how exorcisms were performed, right? Jesus even admits, right? He says there were other Jews performing exorcisms. He says, your sons are casting out demons. But they they, always, they had a very specific you know, uh, process, and they needed to, in order to cast out the demon, they needed to find the name of the demon. Remember this? Yeah. Well, when you have a deaf and dumb demon, you got a problem. We have Jewish writings that actually describe how that was viewed as the ultimate, you know, hard case that no one could cast out a deaf and dumb demon save Messiah. So when Jesus comes along and he does it, then, I mean, that is like the epitome of the messianic sign that his generation was, was looking for. Well, then it says they turn and they say, well, can this be the son of David? And the Pharisees say, no, we got an explanation. He's doing this by Beelzebub, right? They're denying his messianic power. They're denying all of this. And what's interesting is, again, key to this conflict is to understand that the Pharisees cannot deny his power, so they deny his authority, where he gets that power. And so they essentially, in claiming that Christ is in league with Beelzebub, they're accusing Christ of a capital crime, right? We can go to Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, both of which are you know, capital crimes, that they're saying basically that, that Jesus is an occultist. He's an occult practitioner deserving of death. That's what they're claiming. But what's so profound is Jesus' response. And let me just walk you through this real quick, and then we're done. And we could get lost in this, but notice it's really a profound argument. Jesus is, you know, he's the master orator, you know, in so many ways. But first, notice he points out the absurdity of the Pharisees' argument. He says, if I was in league with Beelzebub, that's civil war, right? That's a house divided against itself. That makes no sense. Why would Satan be out to destroy his own agenda, right? So, argument number one, and think about it, it's profound, but argument number one, he just points out the simple absurdity of the Pharisees' argument. Second, he points out the inconsistency of their argument. He says, if I cast out by Beelzebub, then who are your kids using? Right? In other words, you are you're, you're pointing a finger at me, but he says you're you know given carte blanche to your kids who are also performing right your other sons the other sons of Israel Jews that are performing exorcisms so he says you're inconsistent. But then he offers up the more viable conclusion, right? He says, "Well, how about you view it for what it is?" Verse twenty, that I with the finger of God cast out devils. And again, I, I I'm personally convinced. That that's an allusion back to Exodus chapter eight. That he's he's highlighting the greater power, a power greater than they have ever seen. Because again, have they have have his own Jewish contemporaries been able to perform exorcisms? Yeah. But could they perform an exorcism on a deaf and dumb demon? No, they could not. And so the whole point is he is showing greater power. The finger of God is present, and he's saying it must. You must admit this. But if you admit that it's the finger of God, that Jesus is acting on the power and authority of God, then they would have to admit the next conclusion, that the kingdom of God has come, right? That he is indeed the Messiah that Isaiah 42 predicted would come. So this is a very clear messianic claim that Jesus is making. But then, of course, he ends with the warning, which is very appropriate. And it sets up the whole unpardonable sin passage. But we'll end with verse 23 for a sake of time. It says, he, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. Right? He draws the line of the sand. And he says, hey, this and this is the issue that Jesus will, will draw, you know, the line of the sand over, is his authority. Who is Jesus Christ? Right? And, and you've heard it said in, in pithy ways before, like whether he's liar, lunatic, or Lord, right, or something like that. But that is the key issue of all of human history, is who is Jesus Christ? That's the dividing line that Jesus gives here. He says, you know, if you are not with me, you're against me. And it's all about whether or not we recognize who he says he is. You know, that he is indeed, you know, the Son of God, the Messiah predicted of old, the one who exercises the finger of God, the king, right, of the kingdom, et cetera. Like he goes by many titles, et cetera. But he makes that the issue. Which is why Paul makes it the same, you know, Paul does the same thing. He makes that the issue. What is it? Well, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right? That's the key issue, is submitting to the authority of Jesus. All right? So, questions on that? Thoughts, comments? I'm out of time. Slightly over time. But... uh, This is fun stuff. Okay, so next time, we're going to go to number four. And again, I I encourage you to read ahead. And and I'll try to point this out every time we work our way through a new plague narrative. But read ahead and try to find out what is it in the narrative. Because remember, there's economy of space in the Bible. And every narrative, again, I think particularly the 10 plagues, there's a certain set of repetition because it's a cumulative effect it's trying to impress, impress us with. But there's also things about individual, each individual plague that sets it apart as unique. There's something about that plague that Moses, as the author, wants you to know. He wants to highlight it for us. And, and there's a couple of them about the next one. And you'll, you know, so study ahead, read ahead, try and identify some of those. You know, And then, not that you guys are ever hurting for words, right? We've got some great discussion going on. But, but study ahead, read ahead, fuel the fire. And uh, let's, you know, bring some discussion. So it's good stuff. All right, let's close in prayer and we'll dismiss. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the power that you displayed in Egypt so long ago. Thank you for the finger of God that was present then, that was present again in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. That power demonstrating the personhood, the identity of this Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, Christ the Lord. We ask that, Lord, we would not only understand that, but submit to it, that we would have saving faith in the reality that you indeed are Lord, that we would live in light of that, that if we genuinely believe you are Lord, that we would submit every area of our life to your Lordship, to your leading, that, Lord, we would then tell others about you, that we would be your heralds to make sure that the rest of the world is aware of who you are, that you truly are worthy of worship and worthy of all praise. So, Lord, we thank you for these truths, and we pray that you would continue to aid us in our study. We do ask for safety as we go our separate ways, and, Lord, the the road conditions are are not good. We just pray for safety as we go home. Might you uh, then allow us to gather back together Uh, in the future, all to bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.